Dale Church. Glad that you're here. I want to welcome everybody that's joining us online as well. We are in week three of our series called Rethink. This is a series that is aimed at helping us to live like Christ by giving us the mind of Christ. So often our behavior is shaped by how we think. And so by rethinking what it means to follow after Jesus, we can live the life that he is truly calling us to live. We began this series with Pastor Brian a few weeks ago. He challenged us to rethink what compassion looked like by how we can bring the hope of Jesus to people who need to have that hope and that healing. And then last week, Pastor Dale really challenged us to rethink the way in which we've always done things. And that was fitting because it was there that he introduced what we believe God is calling Wooddale to next in terms of Vision 22. Were you excited when you heard about what next for Vision 22? Thrilling? If, uh, if you missed out, it involves our fourth campus location. That's going to be near the University of Minnesota in an area called Seven Corners. And uh, we're going to have a coffee shop ministry as part of that and so many other things. If you missed any of that, I want to encourage you, go to our website, wooddale.org. You can watch that message from last weekend and get caught up. There's going to be a church vote coming up in a few weeks uh, about moving forward with this uh, next step in our vision. And just so exciting. God's calling us to do some really unique things. And there's some things that we've never done before as a church. And that always involves risk. And that means it's going to be a little costly. And that actually brings us to today's passage, where we're going to meet Jesus in the Gospel of Mark, and he is going to challenge us what it means to follow after him. And he's going to do so by asking us what I believe to be the most important question that you will ever answer in your entire life. And I know that's a bold statement. But I honestly believe how you answer this question will change the trajectory of the rest of your life and the life to come. We see that question in Mark chapter 8, and we're going to begin in verse 27. So if you have a Bible, I want you to open it up to Mark chapter 8. I'll be reading from my Bible here. We'll also put it up on the screen so that way you can follow along whichever way works for you. Mark 8, 27. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say that I am? And that's a good question. Now, it's not the most important question that we will ever answer, but it's pretty close. And the reason that Jesus asked that question is because there was a lot of differing opinion on who Jesus was in that day. It was a divisive question. And you know, that is still today a divisive question. Who is Jesus. And we see all the differing opinions on who Jesus was in verse 28. They replied, well, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. I think it's fascinating that people were trying to label Jesus as one of the prophets in his day. See, folks were 
acknowledging that Jesus was special, that there was something significant about who he was. It was undeniable that Jesus had performed miracles. There was all sorts of evidence for that. And he also taught with amazing authority. They had never had anyone open the scriptures to reveal God's nature and God's character in the way that Jesus did and taught. And so there was something about Jesus that they just didn't know what to do with. But by calling him a prophet, that made him controllable. It, it kind of put him in a box that everybody knew what to do with. And I think we kind of do the same thing today. Often I'll ask people who aren't yet following Jesus or aren't sure about who Jesus is what they think about Jesus. And they give him a title that is honoring and yet dismissive of his power. They say, well, you know, Jesus was a great teacher. Or he was kind of a spiritual guru or a spiritual leader. And while he is those things, he's so much more than those things. And Jesus doesn't fit nicely into the boxes that we try to place him into. And Jesus knows this, and that's why he personalizes the question and he forces the issue. Look in verse 29, but what about you, he asked. And then it's almost as if Jesus looks at us right in the eye and says, who do you say I am? And that question is the most important question that you will ever answer in your life. And how you answer that question will change everything. And Peter, who's one of Jesus' followers, often an outspoken guy, he pipes up and he interjects about who Jesus is and he gets it right. We see this at the end of verse 29. Peter answered, you are the Messiah. And when Peter says you are the Messiah, this is not a church answer. This is not some theological title that Peter's throwing around. This is a title and, and a declaration that was dangerous, that was bold, it was revolutionary. See, Rome was in charge of the entire known world at this point in time. And for many of the Jewish people, they had looked into their scriptures. That's what we call the Old Testament. And they saw this promise from God. And it was the promise to bring a savior, to bring an anointed one, to bring a Messiah that was going to usher in God's kingdom, that was going to become the ruler, that they thought was going to, and they assumed, would kick out Rome or any other foreign military or foreign political group. That's kind of what they were thinking was going to happen. And so when Peter says, you're the Messiah, he's saying, Rome's not in charge, other kings aren't in charge, Jesus you're in charge, you're the ruler, you're in charge. It's a big declaration. And Peter identifies for us one of the foundational truths of following after Jesus. It sounds simple, but it truly is transformative, that Jesus is in charge. And as we rethink what it means to follow him, it's something that we need to come back to on a daily basis. In fact, that's one of the things that I'm gonna encourage you to do in the week to come is to have this statement. You may wanna write this one down, but by God's help, I aim daily to declare out loud, Jesus is in charge. By God's help, I aim daily to declare Jesus is in charge. You say, well, why out loud? And it's not just because I want you to all talk to yourself. The reason that we need to say this out loud is we need to hear ourselves say it. It's so helpful for us if we're able, in the midst of all the chaos that's going on in our world or in our own personal life, 
to just have that moment to say, Jesus is the one who is in charge. And we also need to hear ourselves say it because it reminds us that we're not the one who's in charge, but that it's Jesus who is in fact the one who is in charge. So by God's help, I end daily to declare out loud, Jesus is in charge. As an aside, if you are here uh, this weekend or you're watching this message or listening to this message and you don't yet believe that to be true, I am so glad that you're here. I'm glad that you're exploring who Jesus is and I wanna encourage you to keep leaning into that question about who Jesus is because it will change your life. And we have pastors that'll be here after service or any of our folks here on staff at Wooddale that would love to explore with you and journey with you about that question. And for today especially, listen to the rest of this message because you'll start to understand why it's so important that Jesus is in fact in charge. So having declared that Jesus was in charge, Peter's expectations about what that meant were really high. He was excited that Jesus was the rightful ruler because Jesus had affirmed that yes, in fact, he is the Messiah. But then Jesus started saying some things that made it a little difficult for Peter. We see this in verse 31. Meaning Jesus, uh, he then began to teach them that the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law and that he must be killed, and after three days, rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. See, Peter didn't understand, he didn't get it. But when Jesus turned around and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. So what's happening here? How does Peter go from this moment of, you are the Messiah, you're the one in charge, and Jesus goes, that's right, to the Jesus saying, Peter, get behind me, Satan, you don't have in mind the concerns of God. Well, what's, what's happening here? Well, clearly, Peter misses it. And to be fair to Peter, I think I would have missed it. In fact, I think sometimes I still, at times, miss it. See, what was going on with Peter is that he was trying to reconcile two differing thoughts, two, two truths that he couldn't quite seem to fit together. And it was the truth that Jesus was in charge, but that Jesus was going to suffer and die. Because that wasn't his expectation at all. He thought that Jesus was gonna come kick out Rome and install a new political system and that all the disciples, including Peter, were probably gonna be high-ranking officials in that new government. That was kind of his thought. And in this moment, Peter is disappointed by Jesus. Have you ever been disappointed by God? You ever been disappointed because you can't reconcile two of those truths? Maybe it was hard for you to understand how Jesus is in charge and yet you lost your job, even though it was completely unfair. Or how Jesus is in charge and yet you didn't get into that school that you so desperately wanted to be part of. Or that Jesus is in charge and you did it all Jesus' way and yet the relationship still fell apart and it hurt so much or that Jesus is in charge and you prayed earnestly to the in charge Jesus and yet he didn't heal the way that you would have expected the in charge Jesus to heal. What do we do in those moments when we are disappointed by God? Here's the amazing thing about Jesus. He knew that Peter was gonna respond this way. So how do you know that? Well. 
Jesus is God, so he knows all things. But there's an event that's recorded for us just a few verses earlier in the Gospel of Mark that I think gives us some great insight into the fact that Jesus knew exactly what was going on and what was gonna happen with Peter. And I think it's relevant for you and for me as well. So would you look back to Mark chapter eight, verse 22, just go up a couple of verses. They came to Bethsaida, and some of the people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village. When he had spit on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus asked, do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people. They look like trees walking around. Once more, Jesus put his hand on the man's eyes. Then his eyes were opened, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And I've often wondered about this healing story. Like, why does it need to happen in two different stages? And I thought, well, well, maybe the blindness was just really bad in this man. And maybe Jesus had to do it twice. But that wouldn't make sense, because Jesus is God. We saw him just a few chapters earlier in the Gospel of Mark raise a girl who was dead, brought her back to life. He walks on water, he, he commands all of creation, so the level of blindness wouldn't make a difference. And then I thought, well, maybe it's the blind man's faith. Maybe he was lacking faith and he needed to see Jesus touch him or heal him a little bit and then have more faith in Jesus so he could be healed completely. But as we saw from Pastor Dale a few weeks ago, God's actions are not dependent on the depth or the level of our faith. And are we so thankful for that? Because if so, it would be about us and not about God. And it is always about God. It's not about our works or our actions. So what's happening here with this story? Well, I believe that Jesus chose to heal this man in this way, in two different stages because he was illustrating what was about to happen with Peter and the disciples spiritually. That they were going to need an extra touch of Jesus to see Jesus more clearly and to see Jesus more completely. And I think at times, like Peter, we too need to see Jesus more clearly. The first way that Peter was seeing Jesus was this way, he was seeing the Jesus who gives us something. And that's not a wrong way to see Jesus. Jesus does give us a lot of things. He has given us forgiveness of our sins. That's why he went to the cross. Jesus gives to us new life. He gives to us salvation. We, we get to have a restored relationship with God the Father because of Jesus. All good things that we have in our life come from God. They come from Jesus. God and Jesus, they give to us wonderful things. But if we only see Jesus as one who gives us things, we're not seeing him completely or as clearly as we can see him. And the problem with that is that oftentimes we impose by our own culture or our own expectations what we think Jesus should be giving to us. And so in addition to what he says about he'll give to us from scripture, we then add things on. That's what was happening with Peter. It was his cultural expectation that Jesus was going to bring about salvation the way he thought it was. He thought it was more about Rome when God had a whole nother set of plans. And so we need sometimes that extra touch from Jesus to see him not just as the Jesus who gives us something, but to see him this way, and that's to see Jesus who costs us something. And we're about ready to read in verse 34 Jesus' description of what it will cost for us to follow after him. But before we get there, 
Let me just say a few things about cost. The first is that when it comes to talking about cost, we often don't like to bring it up, especially in a spiritual context, because we like to be the ones that manage costs, right? We like to be the ones to determine how much something will cost or how much we're willing to to give for something, and we would love to be able to do that with our spiritual lives, because we like to be in control. But as we saw from earlier, Jesus is the one who is in charge, not us. And if Jesus is in charge, that means that Jesus is the one who determines the cost of following after him, not us. The other thing about cost is that cost is always a function of value. We are willing to pay a high cost for things that are valuable to us. And I was reminded of that lesson nine years ago when my son was born. Uh, the day we brought my son home from the hospital was one of those frigid January days. It was sub-zero temperatures, and uh, Steph and I were brand new parents, and we were like so worried about trying to keep him warm, and it was so cold outside, and we bundled him up, and I, I think I started the car 30 minutes before we brought him out to it just to make sure the car was nice and toasty, and we, and we drove slowly home, and we walked into the townhome we were living in at the time, and we walked in, and it was freezing in our house. And it was like 40 degrees temperature. And, and, and I'm playing with the thermostat and doesn't matter what I do, the furnace is just not responding. We have no heat in our home and a newborn baby. And I freak out, like new dad level freak out. I'm calling everybody I can get on the phone and all these heating companies and it's a cold snap, everybody's busy. And I finally, the sixth or seventh person I got on the phone, he said, well, I, I can make it out later today. But I gotta tell you, it's gonna cost you. And I told him, whatever it costs, just get here. Why? Because the value of keeping my newborn son warm was that high for me. By the way, the the guy shows up to our home. He, He walks in, takes a look at the furnace, no pilot light. It's like, it's not looking good. And then he looks over at the wall and he reaches out for a switch that I promised you I had never in my life seen before. And he flips it and that furnace roared to life. And he looks at me and he goes, I have to charge you the full amount. And I was just like, oh my goodness, right? So I, I, learned, uh, I learned two important lessons that day. First, when you're leaving at one in the morning to go have a baby with your wife, you don't need to turn off every switch in your home. You, you, can, you can leave some up, that's okay. But the second thing I learned is that we are willing to pay an extraordinarily high cost for things that are valuable to us. I paid a lot of money to have somebody come flip a switch in my home, but you know what? The price of keeping my son warm was worth it. The value in following Jesus is priceless, but the cost is very high. Verse 34. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. For what good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? The cost of following Jesus according to Jesus is denying ourselves and being willing to give up our lives. Why is the cost so high? 
I think there's at least two reasons. I think the first reason the cost is so high is that that's the cost that Jesus was willing to pay for you and for me. When he tells us that we need to follow after him and be willing to pick up our cross, that's exactly what Jesus literally is about to do, to go to the cross, to take on the punishment for our sins. Jesus did nothing wrong. He was innocent, and he suffered and sacrificed deeply so that you and me could be in a restored relationship with God. And he did that because of how valuable we are to him. That's why he did it. So don't ever let anyone ever tell you that you are not valuable because Jesus and the cross prove that you are of eternal value. Jesus says that you were worth so much to be in relationship. He so valued the relationship with you that he was willing to sacrifice that much for you and for me. And we follow after Jesus. Now, we don't sacrifice to earn that salvation. That is very important for us to keep in mind. We don't work at it. Jesus has already done it. But we are willing to sacrifice in response and out of gratitude for what Jesus has done for us and because of how much we value the relationship with him. And that brings us to the second reason that we need to have such a high cost of following Jesus And that's because Jesus is teaching us an important truth. And here's the truth. It's the value of a life is how much of that life is given away. The value of a life is how much of that life is given away. And don't we experience this truth all the time? If you've ever been to a funeral, we don't celebrate the life of somebody because of what great accomplishments they had or how much money they earned or how many times they were promoted or the size of their home or how many followers on social media they had. That's not what we celebrate. What do we celebrate? We celebrate how that person gave so much of who they are, who they were to other people, that they made other people's lives better. Think about the people that matter deeply in your own life. They're not the people who are the most famous or have the most power or have the most authority. They're the people who so willingly give of themselves to be in relationship with you. That's why they're so valuable. The value of a life is how much of that life is given away. But here's our fear about this, and we have a fear about it, don't we? The fear is that if we really follow Jesus this way, that if we're willing to give it up and follow after him, that somehow our life is gonna be less significant or that we're gonna miss out And that's why we try to manage it ourselves. So we try to figure out like how much of Jesus can we follow, but how much of our own agenda can we hang on to? And we spend so much of our time trying to manage those two tensions. And Jesus says, stop it. You can't do that. If you're gonna try to save your life, you're going to lose it. But if you lose your life for my sake and for the gospel, you will then find it. And I think the reason that we struggle with this idea is because we have an incomplete picture of who Jesus is. See, Jesus was fully God. He is fully God, which which means the life he lived on this earth, he lived without sin. But sometimes we have a, a skewed view of Jesus, that we view him as fully God, who kind of put skin on and and roamed around the earth for a little bit, but wasn't really fully human and then kind of went back to being just fully God. And that's wrong. He was fully God and fully human. And that's important because here's, here's the truth. 
Because he was fully human, that means that Jesus lived the best, most full human life ever. Have you ever thought about that? That Jesus lived the best human life. And he lived the best human life because he had no sin. Can you imagine how amazing your life and your relationships would be if you had no sin in your life, no shame of your past, no guilt, no anxiety, no insecurity, no lack of confidence? Can you imagine how strong your relationships would be? How aware of your purpose you would be if you lived in perfect relationship with your heavenly father like Jesus did? He understood his purpose was to bring hope and healing and restoration to all of humanity. And because of what Jesus did while he was here on earth, he changed the course of human history forever. That's a pretty good life. And that's a life that he, and this is the promise that Jesus gives to us in scripture, is that he will continue to live that life through us if we are willing to deny ourselves, die to ourselves, and let him through his spirit, live out through us. That's a pretty incredible promise. When we live a life that we've given away, it gets us out of the way, and it lets God work through us. And that is why, and this is the truth, the cost of giving up your life is not going to give you a mournful life. It's going to save you from a meaningless life. That's an important truth for us to hang on to. That following Jesus isn't gonna lead us to a life of being mournful. It's gonna save us from living a life that has no meaning and no significance. We can be so grateful that Jesus teaches us this truth and calls us to this level of cost. But practically, how do we actually live this out? Because if you are anything like me, you are not very good at self-denial. It just doesn't come natural to us. And so I think one of the ways that we can live this out is to take seriously the instruction that the Apostle Paul gives to us by taking a step of sacrifice. Because when we step into sacrifice, it forces us to rethink our lives, rethink who's in charge, rethink our priorities, and understand what it really means to follow after Jesus. Paul says this in Romans 12, one and two. He says, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, because of what Jesus has done for us, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. That means ongoing steps of sacrifice. Holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and your proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that helps us to rethink. And then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is his good, his pleasing, and his perfect will. What Paul is promising us is that if we will follow his instruction, if we will take those steps of sacrifice and offer ourselves as a living sacrifice, then we can know the will of God for our lives. And folks, God's will for our lives is that we would know the joy of a life lived that was given away. And so that brings us to our second homework assignment, and it's simply this. By God's help, I aim daily to make a costly sacrifice of my time, of my talent, and of my treasure. You say, why daily? I think we need to do this on a daily basis because so often I have short-term memory when it comes to the fact that Jesus is in charge. So often I try to take control back from him. 
But I have a really good memory that goes back a long ways of all the things that I've ever sacrificed. And I'll frequently remind God of those things that happened 20 years ago. How about you? And what Jesus is calling us is to do this on a daily basis. To give of our time, our talents, and our treasures. And you know what, I think the vision that God has called Wooddale to, in terms of what's next for Vision 22, gives to us just a wonderful way to put this into practice. You know, we're going down to the University of Minnesota and there are students, graduate students, that are down there that would just love an opportunity to network or to be mentored by some of you who God has given just immense amounts of experience or talent in the area of the legal field or public policy or of business. And by giving just a couple hours of your time every month, making that sacrifice and that commitment, you might have an opportunity to connect with one of those students to be able to share with them the hope of Jesus and to save a life. And to think about the impact that some of those individuals will then go on to have, especially those students who are international students and are going to go back to countries that you or I would never have the privilege of getting into. Or if we were there, never being able to spread the name of Jesus in the way that they will be able to do that. By giving of your time, you can help to make that kind of an impact. Or, 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 you know, part of our vision is to bring the gospel to places where folks can't come to church. There are many senior living communities here in the Twin Cities that have residents that are not able to get out. And so we bring church to them. Dale mentioned that last week as part of our microsite opportunity. By giving an hour or two a week, you can help to bring more of our messages and those messages of hope into those, into those senior living communities, through those microsites. Or how about some of the next-gen ministries we have here at the church in terms of volunteering on, on Wednesday night or Sunday morning to speak into the life of a child. We just saw child dedications a few moments ago in the life of our students or of our children. And by giving a sacrifice of your time you can help to make an eternal impact. If, if you wanna take one of those next steps in the service handout this weekend, there's information about our microsites, there's information about our serving teams, just how you can reach out to be, learn more information about those, or after service, Pastor Justin will be down front and would love to talk with you about being committed and connected to some of our next-gen ministries. Take a step of sacrifice when it comes to your time and your talent. And the other step of sacrifice that I think we can make is when it comes to our treasures. And yes, that means our money. And, and rather than me tell you why I think you need to give of your money, because really that's between you and God in terms of how much and how often God is calling you to be sacrificial in some of the resources that he's given to you. So rather than try to help answer that for you, I just wanna share with you why my wife and I choose to give of our finances. We really value things like comfort and stability. And money provides that for us. And as followers of Jesus, that also provides a really big temptation. Because it's so easy, folks, you know this, it's so easy to trust the resources that God has given to us versus trusting God himself. And so we've done this ever since we were married. We take a percent of our income every single month and we give it to church. And specifically, we give it here to Wooddale, to the fund that helps to support our ongoing ministries. And we do that every single month. It's the first amount of money that we allocate every month. And here's the thing that's been so incredible in our own lives, 
As we've done that, we've actually found more comfort and more security, not in financial resources, but in God who gives those things. Because by giving away increasing amounts of our money, it has forced us to rethink what it means to follow Jesus, and it's forced us to trust in him more completely. And folks, it has brought to us so much freedom financially, because we now have our priorities right. And then when it comes to things like Vision 22, when God gives us opportunities to go over and above what we've already committed, that's what we do. We don't change the amount that we've already given and give monthly to the church. And we use opportunities like Vision 22 to give more. And that means stretching, and that means sacrificing. And we give enough that it forces us to have to sit down and rebudget and reprioritize. Why? Because it forces us to rethink. And we want our priorities to be reflected in how we spend our time and how we spend our finances. And so we did that for the first phase of Vision 22, and we've already committed to doing that and to do that for this next phase of Vision 22. And I hope that you are wondering to do the same thing. That's, that's why we handed out those commitment cards last weekend, and there's some in the pewbacks if uh, you missed that last weekend. But I hope that you've been praying over those commitment cards about what God is leading for you to do as we step in to what is next for our vision. And if you haven't started to do that, I wanna encourage you this week to begin praying, to ask God what your step of sacrifice may be in terms of your time, your talent, and of your treasures. And you know what, I, I know so many of you here at Wooddale Church follow in that same philosophy that my wife and I have. And, and I know that because we are a generous church. Whenever the needs arise, whether they're here, near, or far, I am blown away constantly at how generously our church responds. In fact, when we talk about phase one for Vision 22, did you know phase one of Vision 22 is fully funded? We fully funded the whole project. We just got the report this, this last week that that happened for the first three years. And so, and yeah, you can clap for that. And folks, the reason that that happened is because of your generosity. But here's the call. Are we willing to move from being a generous church to being a sacrificial church? because there is a difference. And that's a call for each and every one of us individually. Because the church is not a building that you attend, it's a movement that you and me are a part of. Each of us, we as individuals, make up the church. That's what God is calling us to do. And that brings us back to that most important question that we will ever answer. Where Jesus himself looks at us and he says, who do you say that I am? Our willingness to live a life of sacrifice is how we answer that question. Father God, this is a challenging truth for us because Lord, we love to be the ones who are in control. We love to be the ones who set the cost. But Father, I pray that you would give to us the humility of Jesus. Lord, who was so willing to humble himself and so willing to give so sacrificially so that we might be able to be in a restored relationship with you. And Father, I pray, Lord, that we would look to the cross, that we would look to Jesus, Lord, that he would be our example, Lord, that he would be our help to be able to live in such a way. Father, that we would take seriously the great and immense value in being in relationship with you. And Father, I pray that because of our willingness to sacrifice, Lord, there would be so many others who too 
would be impacted by that and they also would decide to follow you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.